Just Life, a programme from Radio Maria England. Good morning to all our listeners. This is Radio Maria and as you've just heard, this is Just Life. I'm Edmund Zengeni and we're broadcasting live from our studio here in Cambridge on this uh, well, quasi, almost spring morning here. It's looking pretty bright outside. And uh, this is our regular slot in the week, Just Life, that we run. And today, being two days just away from St. Patrick's Day, we thought we'd give you something of an Irish theme this uh, this morning. And obviously being a Catholic radio station, we thought, well, maybe if we could do something on the, the history of the uh, the Irish Catholic Church, that would be a, well, a worthy mix to uh, to broadcast to to all our dear listeners there. And uh, we needed a candidate to do it, of course. And um, fortunately, uh, a few months ago, a young man came to join us here as a volunteer and he is the young man who's going to do this talk for us this morning. He's a lovely, lovely fella, and his name is Niall Martin. Good morning, Niall. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank All you right. for inviting me on today. To My pleasure. Talk. Our pleasure. So before we uh, dive in, um, how long have you been with us now, uh, Since Niall? November. November. Okay, so that's quite a few months then, it yeah? It is, yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm enjoying working here. It's lovely to do the rosary with our... Yeah, you've most probably a lot of our regular listeners will recognise your voice because, um, fortunately, you've you've been on, you've been on plenty. That's why I thought it was a uh, it was the right time to get you on to yes. do <laughs> our little program on uh, the history of Irish Catholicism. I've got a strong connection with this topic myself, being uh, of Irish Catholic origins, and yourself too. What's your? I am. my family are from a place called Ackle. Ackle. In Mayo. Oh, in Mayo. Yes, Out in the yeah. Wild West. That's it, the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Well, I've got loads of questions to ask, but this is your talk. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to hand over the uh, the airwaves to you and our dear listeners at the little introduction to uh, this fascinating topic. I know my uncle, Uncle Tom Fitzpatrick, should be tuning in in southeast London. Shout out there. And in a... Um, 15, 20 minutes, we'll have a little a music break and perhaps open up the phone lines to see if any of our listeners would like to call in and ask Wonderful. a question. All right, so over to you, Niall. So today I'm going to talk about uh, Catholicism in Ireland, particularly since the time of the Reformation, focusing particularly on the penal era. The penal era was a dark period in Ireland's history, during which the practice of the one true, holy and Roman Catholic faith was outlawed. In nature, the penal laws were much similar in structure to those penal laws implemented in Britain to target English Catholics. But in Ireland they had a more profound effect on the nation, due to one main difference. While England's penal laws were aimed at targeting the Catholic minority, Ireland's penal laws were directed against the Catholic majority. During this period, approximately 80% of Ireland was Catholic. While the penal era is used to describe the period of persecution extending throughout the 18th century. In today's programme, I will talk about a larger period of history, from the Reformation until the early 20th century. My aim in doing this is to describe the growing anti-Catholicism which led to the penal era, and the profound effect the penal era had on Ireland for centuries to come. In some ways, until this very day, 
Following Henry VIII's schism with Rome, he sought to impose a new church on Ireland. He named this church the Church of Ireland. In 1536 he declared himself head of this new church, and ordered that Ireland's bishops break with Rome. While many Anglo-Irish bishops, in return for material favour, agreed to this, the majority of Ireland's Gaelic bishops refused and remained loyal to Rome. During the rule of Henry VIII, the Reformation, despite a brutal and concerted effort, gained little theological ground in Ireland, outside the English strongholds of the Pale, which comprised Dublin and its surrounding areas. In terms of property, Henry's dissolution of the monasteries had a profound effect on Ireland. Many monastic lands were confiscated or sold off to favoured English administrators. Old English, meaning the descendants of Norman lords, were gifted and purchased large swathes of former monastic lands from the king. Notably, why Norman lords were gifted and purchased these lands, not one Gaelic chieftain did. The drive to convert Ireland to the new religion of the monarch continued under subsequent Protestant kings and queens, intensifying especially during the reign of Elizabeth I and James I. During the reign of Elizabeth, the Catholic Bishop of Raphoe, Redmond Gallagher, was martyred by English troops who hunted him down and murdered him for his refusal to accept an oath of supremacy, denying the Pope. He was killed by sword while administering the last rites and anointing the injured sailors off a shipwreck off the Derry coast. It was during this time that the Church of Raphoe, historically the seat of the Catholic Bishop of Raphoe, was seized and is in the possession of the Church of Ireland to this day. Under Elizabeth, the political landscape in Ireland changed once more. Her definitive Protestant theological stance not only enraged the Gaelic Irish, but also offended some old English families who had high Anglican or Anglo-Catholic sympathies. This alienation led to some old English families seeking to re-establish union with Rome. While these families were a minority, they nonetheless did exert some political and military influence, albeit unsuccessfully. While all Protestant monarchs following Henry VIII had, in some way, sought to subdue the Catholic faith of Ireland, none did so so brutally or systemically as James I. It was under the reign of James that the notorious event known as the Plantation of Ulster occurred. The Plantation of Ulster was the systemic elimination or removal of native Irish Catholics from their land in Ulster. During the Plantation, the lands of eliminated or expelled Catholics were handed over to reliable Protestant stock, who were sourced from England and Scotland. While Protestantism had, for a long period, been contained within the Pale, by this period, subsequent wars of conquest had slaughtered the majority of Ireland's leading Catholic dynasties. By 1601, the last bastion of ancient Irish royal Catholic families was Turconnell, also known as Ulster. Therefore, England's Protestant rulers were determined to subdue this region of Papist control. This was not the first time such genocidal policies had been undertaken in regards to Ireland. Thomas Barlett, in his book, Ireland a History, describes how since the Norman invasion of Ireland in 1169, a policy of colonialisation and racial categorization had been pursued. But as the Reformation gained pace, religion and race, rather than just race, took priority. Subjects of the English monarchy were defined growingly as Catholic or Protestant, either loyal to the monarch as head of the church or a dangerous papist of Rome. The persecution of the church intensified during the English Civil War. The Catholics of Ireland, both English and Irish, sided with the monarchists. 
old English Catholics hoped to prevent their lands being seized and divided between parliamentarians, and Gaelic chieftains hoped the British monarchy would pass more toleration for Catholics and allow native Irish people equality with the English before the law. The country descended into a bloody and brutal war against Cromwell and his parliamentarians. In 1649, Cromwell's arrival in Ireland marked one of the darkest periods for Catholics since the time of Diocletian. His brutal reign of terror is estimated to have exterminated up to 58% of the Irish population. Over 60,000 Irish women and children were sold into slavery, and a further 20,000 Irish men sent to Barbados as indentured labourers. If these horrors were not devastating enough, following the violence of war, famine and bubonic plague further decimated the populace of the country. Following the restoration of the monarchy, Charles II once more resumed England's policy of favouring Anglo-Irish administrators over the Gaelic-Irish, which caused great division within Ireland. Following the ascension of James II to the throne, relations between the English monarchy and, Ireland and Irish Gaelic chieftains greatly improved. James appointed the chieftain of Tyrone, a Gaelic Catholic lord, as his lieutenant in Ireland. James also sought a policy of equality in regard to the English and Irish in Ireland. James urged the Irish Parliament to pass acts of toleration and acceptance for Catholics, and pushed for the admittance of Catholics to Parliament. James's reign was viewed as positive by the majority of Catholics in Ireland, and his being deposed by William and Mary was viewed as detrimental to the cause of Catholicism in Ireland. James's defeat at the Battle of the Boyne and departure from Ireland could be described as the definitive period in which it became apparent to Irish Catholics that no English monarch would ever be allowed to put Catholics on an equal footing to Protestants. In fact, to this day, the names of James II is revered in Irish folklore. His commander, Patrick Sarsfield, the first Lord of Lucan, is viewed particularly positively, and banners depicting him are still carried during the annual Ancient Order of Hibernians, St. Patrick's Day March in Donegal Town. The Ancient Order of Hibernians was an organisation set up when the Irish went to America to defend a Catholic churches from attacks from anti-Catholic uh, Orangemen. And there's a particular crossover in Philadelphia. There, the parish of St. John Neumann uh, was defended by the ancient order of Hibernians. Wow, no, that's amazing. So much uh, detail there and uh, facts. Some amazing uh, and terrifying facts as well in there. Wow, so... I know. <laughs> Especially from uh, Oliver Cromwell, there fifty-eight percent of the population yes, eliminated. Yes, it's a huge. Uh, it's a huge, huge amount. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is. Did you say sixty-eight percent sold into slavery? Uh, no, oh. no, it was a uh, fifty-eight percent. You know, um, were died, but a further sixty thousand. Sixty thousand, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's a place called a uh, Spike Island in Cork, which it was a former during the uh, ancient Irish times. It was a a monastery on a remote island, but it was converted uh, by Cromwell into a prison. And this prison is where they used to send people before they sent them off to Barbados and other places. And if you go there, it's a museum now. You can still see the cages where the children were, were put in. They were hung from the right. in these cages before being transported right. on these uh, prison ships. Right. A good friend of mine, uh, Tom Munderley, he's been uh, telling me to read a book called... Uh, from hell to Bob, yes, yeah, I've got that book. Barbados. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I got some of those uh, figures right. from oh, okay, there. Yeah, it's a, okay. good, uh, a good book. I'd and really he told me about the um, about the Irish being. Uh, Indentured labourers, yes, which is slightly yeah. Di- yeah, they they could sort of work their slavery off for yes, seven yeah. years or something and like funny that. Enough, right? in a, in Penal a, servitude and all that. Yes, yeah. yeah. And in um, uh, Antigua, mm. there's an island there 
Antigua, and apparently some of the language of the locals there still has some Gaelic words. Well, how about that? That's incredible. Well, we're going to take a little music break now, and now you've got a song lined up for us. Which one is this? We have. We've got here Only Our Rivers Run Free, sung by Paddy Riley. All right. When apples still grow in November And blossoms still bloom on each tree When leaves they're still green in December It's then that our land will be free I wander her hills and her valleys And still through my sorrow I see A land that has never known freedom And still only her rivers run free I'll drink to the death of her manhoods To those men who would rather they died Than to live in the cold chains of bondage To bring back their rights were denied Oh, where are you now? Burns where the flame used to be Are you gone Like the snows of last winter And lonely Our rivers run free How sweet is life But we're crying How mellow the wine that were dry How fragrant the rosebud that's dying How gentle the wind but it sighs What good is in youth when it's aging What joy is in eyes that can't see When there's sorrow in sunshine and flowers And still only our rivers run free This is Radio Maria, and this is Just Life. And you've just listened to Only Our Rivers Run Free by Paddy Riley. And this morning, we've been listening to a very interesting talk by a, a very interesting young man. It's uh, Niall Martin, who's been speaking to us about the history of Irish Catholicism. Being now just a couple of days away from St. Patrick's Day, we thought we'd uh, give you this special treat. So, Niall, how old are you? Uh, I'm 22 now. 22. All right, great. And um, 
where did you find this uh, this love for uh, Irish history? Well, history's always been a passion of mine, and my my family always talked about their uh, Ackle, and Ackle's got quite a rich Catholic history. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on in uh, today. Okay. And um, it was sort of finding out this local history and the things the Catholics in those areas had been and through. This is back where your folks are from. Yes. So yeah. it, was a, it started off on a local level, did it? It did. Yeah. And there's um, there was a really good uh, priest there who was known as uh, Father. Um, a man is Sweeney, and he was um, killed under the penal laws in the 1700s. My cousin helped get a monument for him. Oh, right, in okay. Ackle, yeah. right. So you go back quite often? I, I do, yeah, every year. Okay. Haven't for a little while with COVID, of but course, hopefully of we'll get back there again soon, you know. That's great. I'll try to get back too once a year. Lovely place. That's right. Well, I'm going to hand over the airwaves again, Niall, to you and our dear listeners, and I'll be here in the background listening to it all and writing notes and. Uh, having a few questions maybe to ask. And if any of our listeners would like to join in the conversation, it's 01223 375564. Over to you, Niall. Thanks, Eddie. The period following James's defeat is described in two terms, the penal era and the Protestant ascendancy. I will attempt to describe the meaning of both. The penal era refers to the period in which extensive anti-Catholic laws were passed, which in many cases outlawed the building of Catholic churches the saying of mass, and the ordination of priests, to name but a few. While officially, the penal laws lasted throughout the majority of the 18th century into the middle of the 19th, in reality the last official penal law was not removed from the legal texts of Ireland until independence and the foundation of the Irish Free State in the 1920s. The Protestant ascendancy refers to the new Protestant administrators put in charge of Ireland following William of Orange's subjugation of the Irish nation. They include some old English lords, but the majority consisted of Cromwellian planters and William's favourites. They enforced a strict policy of Protestantization and passed numerous and invasive anti-Catholic laws. Cardinal Patrick Francis Moran describes how despite intense persecution, the line of apostolic succession survived. Many Irish bishops risked death to bring the faith and to pass it on to future generations. William III passed an act which declared, and I quote, All Catholic archbishops, bishops and regulars should depart the kingdom under penalty of imprisonment and transportation, close quote. The act goes on to say, if they return to Ireland, they should be charged with high treason, the penalty of which was death. In 1704, a registration act was passed, by which only a small number of Catholic clergy were to be tolerated in the country. Any priest unregistered with the government was to be charged with treason. The new Registration Act limited a priest within a certain district, forbidding him to say Mass or perform the last rites on anyone outside his allotted territory. These laws slowly became more extreme, forbidding priests to take a curate and requiring that they renounce the Pope's supremacy or be arrested. This was named the Oath of Abjuration. In 1709, the Catholic part, the, the Irish Parliament, which consisted of English Protestants and barred the entry of Irish Catholics, passed a resolution declaring that for informing on a Catholic priest was, quote, an honourable act, worthy of reward, close quote. A sum of £50, which was an enormous sum in the day, was to be offered to someone who would report Catholics to the authorities in order that they be charged. In 1743, the Privy Council in Dublin decided to up this amount, to the enormous sum of £150. Cardinal Moran tells the story of the Catholic Bishop of Raffaux, 
who, in 1743, in 1743, his name was Dr. James O'Golliher. One night, when visiting a local parish priest, Father O'Hegarty, early in the morning priest catchers set about Father O'Hegarty's cottage. They were led by a Scottish Protestant named Buchanan. They demanded O'Hegarty hand over the bishop, but he refused, giving the bishop time to escape. Enraged by this, the priest hunter immediately arrested Father O'Hegarty. En route to the prison, Father O'Hegarty's parishioners, who numbered a great many, surrounded the convoy with pikes and spears, demanding that the priest hunters release O'Hegarty. Buchanan refused and pulled out his pistol, shooting Father O'Hegarty dead. Such a brutal action was, during the penal era, legal. This story illustrates the intense anti-Catholicism inflicted against the Catholics of Ireland during the penal era. Bishop O'Golliher's successor, Dr Doyle, described him in the following terms. He said, and I quote, The bishop was eminent in the most perilous of times. For his learning, piety and zeal, he seldom had a residence, but went about like his divine master doing good, preaching the gospel, encouraging the faithful, and consoling an afflictive people. Close quote. Despite the best attempts of the authorities to destroy the Catholic faith in Ireland, the church survived. A census from 1731, which was right in the middle of the penal era, describes how in Ireland, during that year, there were nearly 1,500 secular clergy, over 250 friars, nine nunneries, over 600 mass houses, over 50 private chapels, and 459, quote, popish schools. The preface to the report states the intention of the penal laws. It reads, and I quote, The due execution of laws against the Pope's clergy will in the next age root out that pestilent, restless and idolatrous religion. Close quote. The report also displays the extreme and extensive way in which policies were implemented in order to crush Catholicism in Ireland. While many Protestant bishops of Ireland zealously supported these crushing penal laws, there were some honourable exceptions, such as the Protestant Bishop of Elphin, Dr. Law, who tirelessly advocated for equality for Catholics. In 1795, he described why he joined, from an early age, the fight for Catholic emancipation, despite the fact that he was ostracised by the Church of Ireland for doing so. Saying, shocked at the abominable severities to which I saw Catholics subjected, I considered their cause that of justice and humanity. Indeed, the penal laws were so invasive that they even interfered with family life. One penal law declared that Catholic parents could not appoint a Catholic guardian for their children, requiring that any child whose parents died before the age of 21 be appointed with a Protestant guardian by the government, whose duty it became to raise the child in the Protestant faith. As well as restricting the rights of Catholics to parent their children, the penal laws also restricted marriage. Should a Catholic marry a Protestant, the Protestant spouse was be to be subjected to the same penal laws as the Catholic spouse, and should a Protestant spouse convert to Catholicism, they were to be deposed of all property and imprisoned. Such was the hatred and fear of Catholicism. It was during the penal era that the mass rocks were used to celebrate mass. During the penal era, the illegality of celebrating the holy sacrifice of the mass drove priests and parishioners underground. In remote parts of the country, priests would use large rocks as altars on which they celebrated mass. Many of these rocks still survive, and indeed, occasionally, in memory of the fidelity of our Catholic ancestors, both priests and lay faithful alike, Mass is celebrated.
Jekyll Island still has numerous intact mass rocks, as do other parts of Mayo. To think, for a century, Irish Catholics gathered, usually in the dark of night, in snow and in rain, to attend mass. And if they were caught, the penalty was death. We have a song coming up shortly about the mass rocks. Wow, another very, very uh, poignant and thought-provoking uh, second part of your uh, of your talk. There's some uh, some very humbling details as well. I didn't know it was um, it was legal. You could kill a Catholic and get away with yes, it. Yes, yeah, exactly. And during the um, actually from the minute the um, the Normans landed in Ireland in 1169, a book uh, a law was passed which said it was legal for you to kill an Irish person. Right, so okay. from 1169 onwards, that happened. So that's from 1169. 1169. And if people want that's to... That's almost 1,000 years ago. Yeah, then, yeah right? 1,000 years. 800, yeah, over 800 now, nearly. Right. 900 years. You know. Right. Incredible, incredible. So basically, it was an apartheid system. Yes, yeah, exactly. Very similar yes, to South yes, Africa. yes. Where the minority of the whites had control over the majority of the black exactly, indigenous yeah. people. It's exactly, like that, really. Sort yeah. of subjugated yes, and not allowed so, zero freedom. Yes, and we see sort of these trends with sort of colonial... Regimes they seem to implement those kind of policies. They do wherever they go. You yeah, know? yeah. So why do you think, that despite all this, this anger and uh, hatred and systematic destruction of the Catholic Church in Ireland by a very sophisticated system, you know, the British. Yes. Why do you think it flourished so much? I think it was due to the fidelity of the people, but also the priests. They risked intense persecution you know there's so many stories and there's a book by um cardinal moran who was the head of the catholic church in ireland and it's called um catholics in the penal era and um in this book he describes all these different examples of a bit like father hegarty who i mentioned there despite that fear of death you know that that um that constant threat hanging over them they didn't cease many bishops were exiled and they said if you come back you will you know be executed and they still came back and went around preaching there's this lovely story of one of the bishops in Galway, and there was this remote part of Connemara where they'd have to meet to say mass. It was by this big river, they'd have um, the mass rock, and a smaller rock to the side, which was, you know, the bishop's cathedra. So right. <laughs> he'd sit on that, and apparently he would talk there for hours to the people. There was no written Catholic um, catechism; they couldn't have those. If those books were caught with them, you know, they'd they'd have been uh, arrested. So they had to remember the doctrines of the church, but they spent hours teaching to the people. And even in many cases, missiles weren't available, so the priest had to completely memorise right. the missile. It was handed down by word of mouth almost. Yes, right. yeah. And to think that translation would have still been in the Latin, but mm. they remembered every detail of the Mass. So mm. that shows almost the faith there. They spent that time learning. I remember my mum gave me a uh, a one-decade rosary. Yes. She said they used to use this up in the plantations in uh, in Derry so, the, so they wouldn't see them actually praying. Yes, oh... <laughs> So it'd only be one decade. Yes. So you could sort of do it in hiding. Do you think that um, the reason why perhaps it flourished so much under all this sort of systematic and wanton to crush oppression it, yeah. and to, to, to crush it, do you think it worked well? Because perhaps Catholicism and Christianity in its purest sense works well in these kind of places. Yes, and I think it does, especially under that, that intense Threat, persecution. Because yeah. we see, like from the statistics there, they had such, you know, anti-Catholic laws, but somehow, and the English government almost bemused by how Catholicism continued to grow. Each year they do a report and thinking these penal laws were going to work and there'd be like more more priests were found in the country and more this, yeah, you know. Exactly. And they upped uh, upping the reward from fifty pounds, which you know would have been thousands money, then yeah. to hundred and fifty. That's a big leap, you know. They were desperate to catch uh, Catholics, but they couldn't 
find people willing to report them unless you know they were Protestant or I read I read somewhere that the idea of the penal laws was to make Irish Catholic life as miserable as possible yes but yeah. they underestimated the fact that the, the Irish Catholic revel in being miserable. yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> and that oppression almost made them stronger in the faith because they thought they realized that the fact that the English you know the Protestant administration saw this as such a threat there must have been something true to this mm. this religion. Yeah. Of course, yeah. No, it's beautiful. I mean, we could talk for ages about we it. We could, but, and it's uh, a wonderful subject. It is indeed. It is indeed. But um, I'm going to play another song. Now, what wonderful. have you got lined up for us We've now? got Mash Rocks in the Glen, sung by Anne Brolly, and this is about the Mash Rocks in the county of Tyrone. Well, there you go. Way back in the motherland. The county of Tyrone lies one of Ireland's hallowed spots Deserted and unknown And few write historic tales Or wield a poet's pen Can say with pride I knelt beside The moss rock in the glen I'm proud that I am mountain bred This is my natal Rock in the glen No more in courage in me a hill The sentinel stands guard Our ancient foes, the hated hues Have gone to their reward And he who worships God in peace Can bless the fearless man Rock in the glen. God bless the glens of Ireland, every rock and mountain pass. Twas these same glens that under God preserved for us the mass. And if the time shall ever come when Ireland calls her men. This is Radio Maria. Very warm welcome back. And you're listening to Just Life here from our studio live in Cambridge. We've been listening to a very interesting talk on the history of Irish Catholicism now, just two days away from that big feast, St. Patrick's Day, the only day of the year where there's only two people in the world, those who are Irish and those who wish they were. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'll hand over to you again, to Niall, for your third instalment of a very, very fascinating talk. Thanks, Eddie. So by the 1790s, Catholics in Ireland were becoming increasingly impatient with Britain, Britain's refusal to grant toleration for Catholics. This coupled with the growing feeling that Catholicism would never be tolerated by Ireland's Protestant ascendancy led to the birth of Wolf Tone's Irish Republicanism. Growing hostility towards the anti-Catholicism of the ascendancy, 
led to a growing thirst for a revolution among the people of Ireland. This was influenced by two forces. Among the majority was a hope for an Ireland in which Catholics would be equal with Protestants and be the masters of their own destiny. The Irish Parliament at the time only allowed the entry of Protestants despite the overwhelming majority of the country being Catholic. This led to a feeling of disenfranchisement amongst Catholics. The second influence was that of Enlightenment thinking. This was particularly strong amongst the liberal Presbyterian thinkers and some moderate Anglicans. Liberal Presbyterians believed that no, there was no rational reason to persecute Catholics and sought to establish a country in which all religions were equal. Allies such as Robert Emmett and Wolfe Tone hoped for a constitution like America's and founded the Revolutionary Society of United Irishmen to achieve this goal. Wolfe Tone was the son of an Anglo-Irish Protestant merchant and an Irish mother who secretly practised her Catholic faith. Wolfe Tone suffered incredible, incredible bigotry for his advocacy for Catholics. Years prior to his revolutionary activities, he was publicly shamed from the, old, from the pulpit in his Anglican parish for authoring a pamphlet in which he argued that Catholics should have equal rights to Protestants. In 1798, tensions reached a boiling point, and in 17, the 1798 uprising occurred. The country once more descended into a bloody war. The ascendancy deployed the brutal yeomanry infantry to quell the rebellion, the same division of the army that was used to enforce the penal laws. This resulted in the brutal oppression throughout the country. Catholic villages, villages were razed to the ground, priests tortured and killed, and parishioners, men, women and children slain. The following song is about Father John Murphy of County Wexford, his Catholic community was victim to the brutality of the yeomanry. In response to the attack, he raised a battalion of volunteers to fight in the ensuing rebellion, and he was caught by the yeomanry and tortured before being burnt upon the rack. And it was actually during this period in 1798 when our own priest in Ackle was um, tortured and killed, and he was ministering in the town of Newport in Mayo, and um, he was hiding there when the priest hunters came along to look for him. And he was hiding upstairs. One, someone um, said, Hurson uh, Styder, which is the Irish for upstairs. They were saying, don't say that he's upstairs. And another person who spoke Irish heard that and sold him out to the yeomanry in return uh, for the reward money. Right. And he was hung and drew there in Newport. And it's quite a, almost an obscure place where he was hung. You wouldn't notice it. But when you go through Newport town, if you're on the way to Eris towards Mount Jubilee or towards um, uh, Ackle Island... When you go through Newport, you, there's this part to the side, and you'd see it more if you're coming maybe from Ackle towards Castle Bar, that direction. It's just a tiny little corner where there's a tree. But if you look at the wall there, they've painted the walls with pictures of Father Murphy and his execution, because that was the spot where he was uh, hung and drew uh, during uh, the, you know, the 1700s. Right, so that was a tremendously turbulent time, even on Irish standards. It was, yeah. You know. And funny enough, in the 1798 rebellion, uh, French help came, because the French were always, you know, of keen allies of the Irish during the monarchy <laughs> and after the revolution as well. Your, your enemy's enemy is your yes, friend. Yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, they sent uh, uh, Colonel Humbert over, who was a French um, uh, soldier, to help in Mayo establish the Republic of Mayo. So it only lasted for like a couple of months, but there was oh, the that, Republic of Mayo, a sovereign, a, a sovereign nation where uh, Catholicism was legal. Wow. And they, they broke away from England at that time. And, um, okay. and I think it was a priest, actually, who was head 
of the Republic of May, the president was a priest. So. What? How about that then? Yes, I know. <laughs> How about that? Great. Well, I obviously I know a bit about Wolf Tone and who he is, yes. but I didn't know so much of the details. But I knew he was a very he was a pivotal character uh, in um, in the Irish uh, fight for freedom. So that was in the, in seventeen ninety eight. Then it was, yeah. And funny enough, if you look at sort of the United Irishmen, it had quite a, a good mix of Catholics. And Protestants too, who didn't agree. Yeah, I was noticed that that you picked up on that uh, yes, in the yeah. talk that there was a there were a couple of Protestants who had a bit of a conscience yes, and said this yeah. is what has been happening is not right. Yes, yeah, like, and sometimes they had a, a Catholic connection like Wolf Tone, you know, there. Mm-hmm. But there was others like Robert Emmett, you know, an Anglican who stood up against it. I think it was Samuel Nielsen from Belfast who was a Presbyterian, son of a merchant, and it was they were they were influenced by Enlightenment thinking. Uh, sort of right, inspired, like John Locke and yes, freedom yeah. of uh, inspired by France, but particularly the American system of governance, where you know there was an equality there, and um, that's of course because that's the period of time, isn't it? Yes, the it is. Yeah, yeah. You were saying, yeah. And that continued till I say about 1824 at the Synod of Ulster, where the Presbyterian ministers had been more in favour of um, you know toleration for Catholics, which is a funny thing because they were you know the advoc- they were the supporters of William of Orange and of Cromwell. Right. But by this period, the influence of Enlightenment thinking had sort of changed their view on that. But by 1824, there was a vote there at the Synod, and another wing of the Presbyterian Church almost got control of the Synod, of the Presbyterian Synod, and they were particularly anti-Catholic. Right. So from 1824 onwards, that sort of alliance between Catholics and Presbyterians was on the wane, and although. Um, before that period, a lot of Presbyterian ministers, you know, who had been educated in Enlightenment thinking, uh, wanted toleration for Catholics. The majority of their parishioners didn't. Right. There was a lot of petitions against their own ministers who they thought were being too friendly with papists and right. okay. things such as that. So. Again, fascinating, the, the, the tapestry of the, of Irish it's history. It's such a complex between, history. It is, It could have gone either way at some point. So. Mm, mm, but it's, it's great that you can unravel it and unpack it and, uh, and put it into some... Uh, chronological context oh, exactly, so yeah. what what song have you got next for we've us we've got uh, Boulevogue, no. also known as Boulevu, depending on pronunciation oh, right and it's about father murphy from the county wexford and the song tells the story of the 1798 rebellion At Boulevard, when the sun was setting for the bright May meadows of Chamelier, a rebel hand set the heather blazing and brought the neighbors from far. He led us on against the coming soldiers and the cowardly yeomen we put to flight was 
at the harrow. The boys of Wexford, the Pookie's regiment, how men could fight. Look out for hirelings, King George of England, suffered every kingdom. Where breeds a slave For Father Murphy From County Wexford Sweets o'er the land Like a mighty wave At Vinegar Hill For the pleasant lady Our hero The yo's at color to Father Murphy and burn his body upon the rag. God grant you glory, pray Father Murphy and open heaven. I then forever, and that was a song named a Boulevou or Boulevou, depending on where you're from. <laughs> okay, I thought I'd let you do, pronounce that one. And uh, who was it by? It was it was actually uh, that that song was sung by Brendan Bower, but um, it was written by Patrick Joseph McCool, and he also uh, wrote the um, the song we had at the beginning, "Only Our Rivers Run Free." Okay, it's one of the great Catholic poets of the 1800s. Fantastic! This is great. All right. Well, if you've just joined us. It's a shame because you've missed a very interesting talk on the history of Irish Catholicism. This programme will be repeated. Look on our website under schedule and you'll find out when. And also it will be available as a podcast. So we've been hearing your talk and so forth. Where are we now on the, uh, in the space of time, would you say? Which, which part of history <laughs> well, will we be? We're getting to the end of the 1700s now and we're going to talk a bit about the 18th century well there's plenty more to come i imagine there is all right well i'll hand over the airwaves once more wonderful thank you eddie the 1798 rising was unsuccessful and the majority of its leaders were exiled or executed the majority actually being executed and a minority of presbyterians were were exiled in 1814 robert emmett an anglican who advocated for catholic emancipation attempted a second rebellion but he was caught and hung and drawn in dublin for a period after this, the nation was silent, bloody and bruised by the brutal anti-Catholic oppression. It looked as if once and for all, Ireland was subdued. The 18th century was like that before it, a period of subjugation and torture. But the 19th was to be no better. While it did see the end of most penal laws, a worst fate was yet to come. The famine decimated the nation in a profound way. Unjust land distribution resulted in many tenants being evicted from their land and starving to death. This heightened religious tensions even further, 
given the fact that the majority of landlords were Protestants and their tenants Catholics. On Ackle Island, Sir Richard O'Donnell evicted the poor Catholics of Sleeve Moor for no reason other than their fidelity to Rome. He gifted the land to the Protestant Mission, a proselytising organisation whose purpose it was to offer starving Catholics food and the return of their land on condition that they publicly renounce Catholicism and convert to Protestantism. This led to what many newspapers of the time, including the Irish Times, described as the battle for the soul of Ireland. A fierce contest of wills occurred between the Protestant zealot Edward Nangle, chair of the mission, and the Catholic Bishop of Toome, Archbishop John McHale. McHale bought the land of Bunakari and Dua for Catholics who were evicted from Esleve Moor. He established the Franciscan monastery there to provide food, education and employment to the people. McHale's ingenuity and devotedness to poor Catholics of Ackle is credited as having saved thousands of lives. Many Protestant commentators believe if an, if an island the size of Ackle could have been converted, the whole of Ireland would be next. It was almost viewed as a microcosm for wider society. McHale's efforts led to the complete shattering of this Protestant ambition and convinced many Protestants that converting Ireland would be near impossible. And I also wanted to mention there about the Franciscan monastery that was established in Ackle. The head of it was um, Brother McDermott, uh, Bonaventure McDermott, and he put such incredible effort into establishing this monastery and helping the people. It was said when it was built at 6am, uh, when you know the sun would be dawning, just coming up, the workers would come to help Father McDermott uh, build the monastery, and they'd always find he was the first one there in the morning. God knows how long he'd been there before the workers got there. And at night, when everyone went home, he was still there helping to build, build it up. So he was a really practical, practical man, and he put a lot of effort into helping those people. He really did a great service to that. Right, very devoted, it sounds. He was, really, absolutely. And that monastery was there, actually, until it was shut down in 1975, which is a great shame. It's now fallen into... Oh, that's a shame. Repair. It's completely the roof's falling in. and right. It's a real shame because it had such a, a beautiful history. And um, I am particularly fond of um, Archbishop McHale, who um, the, the stadium for the Mayo GAA team is actually named after Archbishop McHale. It's called McHale Park. But he did such incredible things for Ackle. And he was a supporter of Michael Davitt and the Land League as well. And he was from Ackle also. So he did, yeah, Davitt was from Ackle, so he did... Um, a lot of work there for the, the poor peasantry. And uh, my granny's um, mother was from Banakari, which was the area around the monastery. So we're incredibly thankful for that because without the foundation of the monastery there, all those people would have starved to death. Wow. So th there's a, a, lot of, a lot of lives were saved by McHale and by the Franciscans there in Ackle. So, you know, credit to them. And uh, mm. we should all pray for them because they were such great you know, priests. Right, these are like the unsung heroes, aren't they? Yeah, ah, yeah. And some of them, you know, got ill themselves, you know, helping helping the people. You know, they worked, died young, working hard there on the land and also disease, you know, was rife right. during that time. So they really did. A bit you know, like, risk, like, like Mother yeah. Teresa of Calcutta. Yes, yeah, they risked the... everything to, to help the poor and it's mm. such a wonderful, wonderful thing, you know. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, it's interesting, I picked up on the part of um, the battle for the soul of Ireland. Yes, yeah. And the papers that were very Protestant reviewing this as, you know, they, they thought it would be positive if Ireland could be converted. So that was used by the Protestants, the battle for the so soul of Ireland. Yeah. Create this Protestant paradise on there. Yes, exactly. Right. You know. And they thought they set up an orange lodge. We didn't know that there was an orange lodge actually on Ackle that um, became, um, un you know, they couldn't recruit any members. So it only lasted like a year. They had the members of the mission who were English. I think they recruited one person 
and that's all they could find, so it shut down. But uh, a couple of years ago, there was someone in um, Blacksod Bay who was um, fishing, and he he caught something on his uh, fishing rod, and it was an old Orange Lodge medallion from some of the English who were there. Right. You know, but um, the Orange there was so there was intense battles really. You know, you'd have um, members of the Orange Lodge attacking Catholics, and Catholics would then, in response, of course, attack back. You know, tit for tat. Tit for tat. There was a lot of that yeah. on the island, but. Um, it's an incredible, incredible history. You know? Yeah, I also picked up on the part where um, Catholics were um, were given land in order if they if they converted. I yes, think my yeah. mother told me a story. One of her, yes, yeah, not so distant relatives. It could have been a grandfather or great grandfather was uh, was uh, wanted to buy some land, and yes, uh, the only yeah. way he could do that was to, to was convert, to convert. Yeah. yeah. How much do you think all this has an effect on your psychology as a Catholic, an Anglo-Catholic today? It's twenty twenty three. We don't live in those times anymore, fortunately. Yes. Um, but do you think it's had an influence on uh, on your Catholicism yourself? I'd say as a Roman Catholic, it makes me more proud to be Catholic. You know, it makes me sort of more maybe strong in the faith. You think, despite the challenges we face and whatever horrible things happen to us, the people of the past went through so much more. You know, can you imagine a family of ten and someone who loses seven of their children, or something like that? It's such a horrific things, and they managed to keep their faith. So we. In compared to you know compared to them are relatively You've got it easy yeah, right? yeah we have and I think of them um, father there's a great book by Father O'Sullivan called Moshkal Fein they haven't got an English translation it was all written in Irish but he was from a poor peasant uh, background and he he was one of the only survivors of his village during the famine right. and he writes how he remembers them um, the people did have meat but you weren't allowed to, well fishing boats as well in Ackle uh, Catholics weren't allowed to use fishing boats they were compulsory compulsively purchased by the government. So there was food about, but Catholics weren't allowed to eat it. Right. And Father Sullivan talks about how he remembers when he was a child, the the English landlord would come round and check that there was no meat in the pots, and if there was meat in the pots, they'd be, um, you know, severely consequences. Yes, to be, they, yeah. they would be, and he was taken for three days and questioned, being only age ten. Right. So there was, you know, they went, they took, they went to incredible measures to almost torture the people into submission, you know. And I think of Archbishop McHale and his wonderful witness as Bishop of Tume. He's the Archbishop of Tume, and during his own lifetime, he suffered a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot at the hands of anti-Catholicism. He talks about his faith in a book that he wrote about him um, in the when he was a child growing up during the penal era. He remembers his parish priest uh, being killed in front of him. Wow! And he was an altar server, and he went up to the parish priest and. He remembers him pulling out of his jacket the the um, the host. He had um, a host that he was bringing to someone who was sick, and he put it into Archbishop McHale's hands, and only a young boy. And he remembers the blood, you know, from his parish priest on his hands, and holding on to that that Eucharist, that host, right. and that was what's you know really solidified his faith. And he knew from that moment on he himself wanted to be a priest. Wow! And he did so much good in his life. He devoted himself so much to helping the people of the West of Mayo, you know. Wow, that's an amazing, amazing story there. It makes you very, you know, strong in the faith to read does, about these yeah. people. It does, yeah, and it humbles you too. It does. And my, my mother, she would tell me about the stories in, in Derry especially, about how hard it was yes, for, yeah. for Catholics to get work. And exactly. You know. They'd sit in a chair and as soon as they say their surname, yes, they'd yeah. know. It was, up, it was like that till very recently there as well. Oh, you absolutely. Um, so, yeah, like you said, we've got it relatively easy. We get have, up and yeah. get to Mass, you know. Exactly. doesn't yeah. matter how hungover, you, how, how hungover you are from St. Patrick's, you'll be there. A lot of the Masses um, years ago when they had to, you know, they had to travel. I know in Ackley they had to travel up into the mountains to get to this Mass rock that was in an obscure place for the English 
couldn't find them. They'd have to walk there, you know, in their feet. A lot of the masses would be on at midnight because they had to be at times when it was dark so they wouldn't be seen. And also in snow and rain, there's a beautiful picture of the Pinaliri. You can get it on a postcard and it shows the priest celebrating mass in the snow and the parishioners there without shoes on. And you can see in the distance, some of the parishioners are watching out and they can see the yeomanry infantry coming with their guns mm. to kill the people. You know? yeah. They're still there kneeling at mass. You know, yeah, It's like the epitome of peasant Catholicism. That's it is, simple. yeah, that fidelity. You know? yeah. And it's just a wonderful you know, thing to read about. Great. Well, look, we haven't got that long left, but we've got one more song to play. And uh, who is it this time? This is the Wolf Tones, and here's the Loch Sheelan eviction oh. about a Catholic couple who were evicted during the famine. Welcome back. This is Just Life. I'm sat here with Niall Martin and we've been listening to a very interesting talk on the, the history of Irish Catholicism. And uh, well, we've got a few minutes left. So uh, if you'd like to add anything more, we'd, uh, we'd love to hear it. I thought I'd conclude by talking about the early 20th century, which was the period when Ireland was getting towards 
independence in the 1920s, so I thought I'd quickly mention that. Skipping forward to the 20th century, we see a land of rights still denied. In 1906, a Catholic shopkeeper was deprived of all his land for his inability to write his name in English, Irish being his only language, as it was for many living in the Gwaeltocht, which is an Irish-speaking region. In 1916, the Easter Rising occurred, the catalyst for Irish independence. Led by schoolmaster and barrister Porrick Pierce, the Rising was timed to coincide with Easter. Pierce's writings were profoundly Catholic. Another of its leaders was Joseph Plunkett, writer of the famous Catholic poem Blood Upon the Rose. He was the son of papal count George Noble Plunkett, who travelled earlier that month to Rome to inform the Holy Father of the Rising and received apostolic benediction. Following the 1916 Easter Rising and the execution of its leaders, subsequent wars between Irish nationalists and the British government occurred. This led to heightened anti-Catholicism. By 1920, the British government was desperate to quell rebellion in Ireland and prevent home rule, despite the fact that it had passed through Parliament. This resulted in the deployment of the Black and Tans, named after their distinctive uniform. The Black and Tans were an auxiliary division of the British Army, consisting of former convicts and soldiers who had previously been dishonourably discharged. They burnt down whole towns and murdered many men, women and children. One of the most chilling incidences occurred in Galway where they tortured and castrated a Catholic priest for refusing to break the seal of confession. In the same village, they also tortured and killed a 12-year-old Catholic scout, and in Cork shot dead a Catholic mother and her baby. Following the independence of Ireland, all remaining penal laws were repealed, and the Irish Free State was distinctively Catholic. In Northern Ireland, sporadic violence continued for another 10 years. In Belfast, Catholics were burnt out of their homes en masse, parishes attacked, Bombs targeted at Catholic schools and whole families slaughtered. By the beginning of the 1930s, violence in the north started to wind down, but Catholic political representation was still nominal due to the gerrymandering of voting boundaries. In the Republic, the state from the 1920s onwards was led by Eamon de Valera, a devout Catholic who in 1928 described seeing the face of Christ superimposed upon the celebrant at Mass in Blackrock Chapel. Eamon de Valera helped to arrange the Eucharistic Congress in the 1930s, and he is sometimes credited with building Ireland's solidly Catholic culture in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, which remained until recently. Wow, thank you very much indeed. That was a, an amazing hour. Thank you, Eddie. It's been a pleasure, a real honour to come on and give this speech here on the radio. Well, you put a lot of work into it, so... Uh... I'm sure you're doing a lot of people proud. Thank you. And that's, a, and that's an amazing thing. And I hope our listeners too have enjoyed this morning's talk just a couple of days away from St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March. I hope you have a good time. Enjoy. Maybe raise a glass. I know I will be. And uh, I want to say thank you once again for joining us. And until the next time.